submitted for your approval one Rod Serling, a rumpled television writer who gained a sort of immortality by appearing on camera introducing an anthology series that would go down in history as one of the finest of all time. His story was not an amazing story, nor did it take viewers to the outer limits. Instead, it took them to the heart of human nature, one of the darkest corners of the Twilight Zone. The Incomparable Number 327 November 2016 Welcome back everybody to The Incomparable. I am your host Jason Snell and we're here in this episode to talk about classic television series from long ago, from more than 50 years ago, but you probably know it and if you haven't seen it, you know what? You probably still know it because of all the references. It's so influential and funny thing it's often rerun over the holidays in a marathon, which is one of the reasons we're doing it right before Thanksgiving. It's the Twilight Zone. We're going to enter our dimension, not only of sight and sound, but of mind, and introduce my panelists. He's fresh out of the asylum, so let's put him on an airplane. It's David Lore. Hello. Submitted for your approval. A playwright surrounded by cornfields, reaping what he sowed in the Twilight Zone. Also, uh, Steve Lutz is here. It's good that you're here. It's really good, Steve. It's great that you're here. It's a real good podcast you're making here, Jason. Real, It's real, real good. good. It's, it's real Ma- good. Make it's him stop good. doing it. Make him stop. <laughs> Somebody hit the podcast host over the head with something hard <laughs> while I've got him distracted. <laughs> And now, uh, first time on as a panelist, although you've heard his voice before in some of our uh, listener feedback episodes, he's also the host, and this is relevant, of the Random Serling podcast. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's Dan Wersh. Dan, um, I'm Talkie Tina, and I'm going to introduce you. <laughs> Look, Mom, Santa Claus is loaded. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was going to introduce... Our next guest with some dialogue from uh, the classic Twilight Zone episode, The Invaders. Silence. But there isn't any. It's Frank Wu. Frank, welcome. Thanks. I love The Twilight Zone. I am so psyched about this. (laughs) I cannot express in words, because we're talking about an episode that has no dialogue. I cannot express in (laughs) words just how awesome this this is. I've I've loved this show since I was little. And, ah, yes. Now, see, Thanksgiving is not my Twilight Zone holiday. It is, for me, it was always the 4th of July. I know that there probably are some places, some weird places where Thanksgiving is the time for the Twilight Zone marathon, but it was always, at least in the LA area, it was always uh, the 4th of July. That's that's just the conversation around the table with the in-laws. That's what thanksgiving is I'll, I'll just we we now you you debated this when we set this episode up steve I, I i did my research and the twilight zone marathon originated on kitla in la at thanksgiving of 1980 so it was a thanksgiving marathon before it was a fourth of july marathon. wow in your face K, on ktla no kidding well they changed that they changed it then very eat shortly it, steve. after that oh my and it was, god it was always a new year's day marathon back east yeah. it's a holiday thing too it's a yeah. good thing good thing yeah. to have a marathon about regardless yeah, it works better for the fourth of july though because there's nothing else going on on the fourth of july mm-hmm. you don't have any meals to prepare or anything you're just sitting around waiting to blow stuff up in the evening and well it's there's a lot of homespun americana yeah and they're all, they're all episodes about how messed up america is 
<laughs> yeah, see, far more that Twilight too. Zone episodes are set in summers gone by than any other season. So there's only one summer to every customer, Jason. <laughs> I was just thinking that, that, you know, you could put something on the stove and for Thanksgiving and then watch a, an entire episode and then come back and it wouldn't be done yet because these are, these are, these are quick. They're pacey. They're fast. They are fast. They're in and out. 20 minutes. They're done. I got through these ones we watched for this in like, just lickety split. Yeah. Super fast. fast. Speedy. Speedy. It's kind of nice. Instead of watching a movie that goes on for three hours. Uh, they don't make them like this anymore. We watched six episodes and we're going to talk about it, but I thought we would get, uh, I thought we would maybe get started by talking about the Twilight Zone more generally. You know, it is, it is in, in, uh, in people's memory. They know about maybe the voice of Rod Serling and him appearing in a suit and, uh, introducing it. Every, every introduction ends with a little, uh, a little, uh, mention of the Twilight Zone. Uh, and how how does he work that in and how does that all fit in the theme song is super creepy there are lots of really interesting opening credits it's all in black and white um and lots of amazing actors showed up in it and of course it's famous for its surprising twist endings that happen a lot i think it sticks in our our, our minds this is a this is one of these these things that 55 60 years later it's still quite memorable the the um all of these stories as an anthology series, especially it's a little surprising. There's no like indelible characters like Star Trek or something like that. It's just these stories. And, and, and yet it remains, um, I I would say, I don't know if it's influential, but it's certainly strong in memory. They don't make shows like this anymore. Well, but you know, except for the the Twilight Zone uh, rehash that gets created about every, (laughs) every 20 years. Yeah. 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 But even, even there you've got, it it is influenced episodes of other shows. It is. Oh, for sure. uh, it has influenced the style of shows like The X-Files. I mean, what is The X-Files but just a really long Twilight Zone uh, that kind of meanders and gets lost in its own mythology halfway through the show? But anyway. Well, The Simpsons Halloween episodes wouldn't exist without The Twilight That's Zone. True. That's right. That's there are right. almost more of them than there are Twilight Zone episodes at this point, too. <laughs> you know, and, and part of the reason it's endured were things like um, science fiction theater and even The Outer Limits. The Outer Limits is still kind of popular. Uh, but, you know, anthologies were a big thing at the time. The reason this one endures, I think, is because most of those were about quick scares. And it's not it's not just, hey, it's a monster ah, and trying to deal with the monster or, hey, it's uh, invaders from space. Right. There's more to it. It's about uh, the fear of the unknown at work on a normal human being. And almost every episode does that. That creeping sense of something is really, really weird and and it's going to eventually overwhelm me if I don't do something. And sometimes the, the main character is overwhelmed. Sometimes it's someone who deserves their comeuppance. Uh, and sometimes it's working on a perfectly innocent person uh, or someone we think is a perfectly innocent person. And and so there's there's more at work there than just scary story, creepy story. Well, they're morality plays. I mean, they, right, yeah, they right. Rod Serling really used this as a way to tell stories about politics because he had had a show, I think it was called The Arena or something like that, which is about politics in 1956. And then they killed it because it was talking about, you know, current politicians. And it's like, well, if I make everybody a robot and tell the exact <laughs> same story, that'll be fine. And, and everyone will know that this robot is Eisenhower and this other robot is Adley <laughs> Stevenson. And, you know, I can say whatever I want. Ike was a robot. The, the, the final story was when he tried to do a, a teleplay about the Emmett Till story. And 
they completely, I mean, they said, well, you can, you can set it a hundred years earlier and you can set it in a little Mexican town and, and it won't have anything to do with Emmett Till and it'll barely resemble the real story. And he said, this is ridiculous. And it was awful. I think it was called a town is turned to dust. And, and that was the moment when he said, you know, again, if I, if I set it in a science fictional setting, they, they just go, Oh wow, robots. Cool. Yeah. That's what they used to do in Soviet Russia. That was the secret sauce in Star Trek too, right? Is, That's right. Is, you That's know, right. we, it's so ridiculous that, uh, we can slide in our, our, our meaning and, and, uh, everybody can just agree it's going to be an allegory. It's going to be metaphorical. It's not going to be. That's why, like, some of the best Star Trek episodes are also some of the worst. <laughs> uh, let that be the last, your oh, last God, battlefield yeah. where you got, like, Guys that are like black on one side and white on the other side, uh, as opposed to the guys that are white on that side and black on the other side, which is either the dumbest idea you've ever seen or the most brilliant idea. And it's like, it's hard to tell. Well, the problem is when they're too on the nose. Yeah. And, and one thing that Serling was good about was couching things properly within enough of a sci-fi or horror uh, environment that whatever the message was, it was relatively unrecognizable. He wasn't beating you over the head with, with his humanism or whatever it was that he was pounding that week. I feel like a lot of the, these episodes, including those samples that we watch, one of, the, one of the great things about them is not all of them, but some of them, you don't, you're not entirely sure what you're watching when you're watching it and, and where the supernatural element will come in if it comes in at all. Some of them are a little more mm-hmm. obvious, but some of them, you're not just waiting for the twist. You're like waiting to see um, when you take uh, like... An episode like um, there are a lot of these where where there's somebody who you think may be losing it, and it's unclear whether you're re- really witnessing a supernatural event or just a crazy person. Like you know, Living Doll is kind of like that, um, and uh, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. Twenty Thousand Feet for yeah. sure is like that. Which and and the beauty of that is he starts as someone who just left an asylum, right. Right. And he's he's struggling. You know, it's like, is he crazy? And at the end, no, he did see a thing on the wing and he has regained his sanity, even though they wheel him away. Or and we'll get to it when we talk about this one. But um, in Mon- the monsters are due on Maple Street. I mean, you could go very, very deep, like literally to the last shot of that and just cut it off before the end. And say, there are no aliens. There's no fantastic element. The monsters are us. Yes, the monsters are us. We established (laughs) this. We're done, right? And that I love that about the It would almost be better, in fact, that particular Mm. episode. Yeah. So the reason the Twilight Zone stuck with me was particularly that it was like the perfect first geeking out kind of show. Uh, You know, I was not old enough to be around when these originally aired, but I saw them constantly in syndication. And in particular, those those marathons I looked forward to every year and I would sit there and watch them over and over again. Um, And it was really the first show that I just completely geeked out about and I wanted to make sure I had seen all of them. Um, And it was one of the first shows that I can think of that had a companion book that came out that listed every episode, The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zacree. Um, long before the internet made these things, you know, uh, things that you could just pull up with the tap of a couple of fingers, you had to go to the bookstore and specifically buy the Twilight Zone Companion. But it was great because it listed all the episodes, uh, you know, season by season with the original air dates, which wasn't necessarily the same as the dates that uh, they were produced in. And it, it was written early enough that, uh, and thank goodness that he wrote it when he did, as opposed to waiting until the internet age, because he was able to, to interview the creators. You know, they were, some of them were still alive, and the ones who uh, weren't were not so far gone that people had forgotten, you know, the, the various uh, 
things that they had said about the episodes. So, I mean, it was just, it was a treasure trove for somebody who liked to really get into something and sort of uh, appease that collector's urge. Yeah, my, my copy is sitting three feet away from me as, as we speak. I'm holding it in my hands. Unfortunately, I lost my first edition. I'm, I've got the second edition. So, Dan, uh, what prompted you? I mean, you obviously care enough about this that you decided to do a podcast all about uh, the, the Rod Serling uh, TV series. So what, what, what made this click for you? So it's interesting. Uh, at least I hope it's interesting to people. That's, uh, that's the purpose. <laughs> yeah, of we'll the be show. the judge of that. <laughs> um, There's the twist. <laughs> the, uh, yes, will it be interesting or not? Uh, the, the thing for me is, uh, like, like many of you all have said, uh, I'm not old enough to have seen the show in its original runs, but uh, was very familiar with it through syndication. You know, I can recall watching uh, many episodes uh, on the couch with my uh, grandmother who lived with us at the time. Uh, we were, she kind of turned me into a TV junkie. Or did she? <laughs> <laughs> or was it your grandmother? She was dead the whole time. <gasps> But yeah, it's uh, so for me, I have some memories of that, but then um, really hadn't watched any episodes of the show in a very long time. And I was feeling the urge to create a show that that had, you know, gave me a reason to find guests and talk to different people and uh, and just kind of happened upon. Well, here's this thing that uh, that not only there's the Twilight Zone, but then I also added Night Gallery into the mix to, uh, you know, just to add some uh, just crummier television uh, (laughs) oh i don't know i like that gallery an awful lot it has it has its moments so yeah part of my motivation was that i'm not as well versed as 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 you all actually are and so it was giving me a a a reason and a a justification with a full-time job to spend as much time as i'm planning to (laughs) watching all this tv uh i felt like i had to have something come out of it creatively so uh so that's kind of uh the show's as much for my education and uh, and and learning from my guests as anything else well i mean 20 minutes a week whoo that's uh <laughs> anyway uh let's let's i i've randomized using random.org uh a list of the six Random. episodes that we watched. yes that's right when you want to watch twilight zone episodes randomly choose random.org the invaders came up first the invaders. okay oh now we're just going to be quiet for 20 minutes <laughs> That's that's we talk about the the ways this is influential. One of my like three notes that I made for this episode. This is the episode where Agnes Moorhead is chased around by these adorable little like robot <laughs> astronaut things that are creatures th- of some sort. Of you some can buy sort. those on eBay. They are adorable. Well, they're adorable until the one is holding a knife that's bigger than him, oh, and then sure. they suddenly actually <laughs> become terrifying. But it was self defense. Like, like when they're just when they're just shining their little light at her and and making welts raise up on her skin, then they're not yeah. quite so terrifying. But as soon as the thing's got the knife sticking out, well, I mean, the headline is "Local Woman Menaced by Adorable Robots." I think that's the <laughs> yeah. That is my favorite shot in like any Twilight Zone episode, where where she's grabbing the the doorknob and the knife comes out and cuts her. Oh, and, bad. And, the, yeah, it's so bad. It's so visceral. And the thing I love about this episode and the, the reason it works for me, because, you know, as, as someone who's worked in animation, as someone that really likes animation, it's like anyone who's who has any interest at all in doing animation should see this episode because the reason yes. a lot of CGI doesn't work is because the characters don't interact with the environment. It's like in, in Prometheus, they're taking this vehicle from the spaceship to the alien ruins, and there's all this cool landscape that you see out the window, and no one is looking out the windows. <laughs> and it's like in this episode, she's like, she's making food. She's like, that, that knife is set up by when she takes a slice of the potato or whatever, and she eats it. 
She's like actually eating. So you get this sense that she's actually in this environment working in, in interacting with the objects in their environment. Has she used that knife? We saw it in use. Yeah, we knife. saw the knife. Yeah, exactly. And so when she gets stabbed by the knife and cut by the knife, you like really feel it. And that's why I think this episode really works. And I mean, one thing is that if you look closely, I mean, it starts out, you know, you see the establishing shot of the cabin with the smoke coming out from the chimney and, and Rod is doing his little introduction. And so it looks kind of rustic and that explains why things look a little different. And, and of course, the twist, spoiler horn, is that she's on another planet and the invaders are are Earthmen. It's us! Oh. The monsters are us once again! Oh no! And all of the tools and everything she uses had had to be specially designed just for the episode so that they looked enough like what we would use on Earth to be recognizable. And yet, when you go back and watch it again, they look just a little more stylized. They look right. a little bit different. Which yeah, is really and even cool. the, the vegetable or whatever is that right. looks sort of like a cabbage yeah. that she's chopping up doesn't really look exactly like a cabbage. It's you not, see it from yeah, a distance. It's not really a potato. And and I mean, I want to I want to just talk for a second about the director because everybody talks about the writers. Oh, Douglas and Hayes. Douglas Between Hayes. this and Eye of the Beholder has got to be the, oh yeah, yeah. spectacular, I mean, fanciest was, of all the Twilight Zone episode directors. He was he was kind of a journeyman director on television in the fifties and sixties, and then and then went into movies a little bit. Um, and, and some of his stuff is just very straightforward. Yeah. He wrote and directed several episodes of Maverick, which, you know, there's kind of a shift and, but yeah, these two episodes, he directed, I think nine Twilight Zones altogether and, and all nine of them are very good, but these two are just really smartly directed. And, and especially in this one, uh, one of my mother's tests for whether something was a, was a good story or a good movie was, you know, back, back then when you were, you were flying across country, they just had one giant screen. So everybody was forced to watch the movie, whether they had headphones or not. And she wouldn't get the headphones. She would just, you know, kind of zone out and watch the movie. And usually she could tell what was going on in the story just from the visuals. Yeah. This one, you, you know, if you're, if you're just watching the visuals without the audio, you don't quite get what's going on at the end. If you're just listening and you don't have the video, you have no idea what's going on at the end. And this one, you need both. It's one of the few things where you absolutely have to be paying attention to get what's going on. And that's that's kind of a neat trick. Yeah, this has got to be a tough episode to produce just because you're – I mean, there's the, the complications of – you know, making this alien without making it seem alien. So you get to the twist and you aren't, uh, you know, spoiled on it. Um, but then there's the fact of the little dudes that had to be basically puppets, you know, and, and how do you make them semi-menacing when they're just like little fat guys, little Michelin men walking around? It's kind of close sometimes. They're, it is, not always, but you know, he you pulled know, it off. And, and like I said, the turning it point works. is when they're shooting their little ray gun at her, it's not really that freaky. And then the the one takes a knife to her to her ankle and and suddenly it it, make, it takes a turn and it actually is genuinely scary um and you know i love this episode because it's because it's a straight up horror episode and there aren't necessarily that many of those in the twilight zone canon i mean there's usually more of a sci-fi aspect to it and this one gets to it at the end but for the most part it's just a horror story and and this it's written by richard matheson who that was really kind of his specialty in a way it's a lot like duel it is. The, the movie that he wrote uh, with no dialogue with the guy with uh, the truck. Dennis Weaver. Yeah. Dennis Weaver, yeah. 
so one of the things that uh, struck me about it while I was watching The Invaders is the, like, when TV series, modern TV series do, like, stunt episodes, special episodes, they are they are trying to be like the twilight zone i mean the twilight zone was almost all stunt episodes in one way or another but the ones that really got me were invaders and eye of the beholder which are both very high concept ideas like invaders there's no dialogue and eye of the beholder which we'll get to in a moment is uh the way the cameras are moving and the way the actors are moving so that you never really see the faces of any of the characters until the big reveal at the end and i was immediately taken back with um with uh, the invaders in particular to hush the um the silent episode of buffy the vampire slayer which is just i mean it's the same concept it's what if we had to tell a story without dialogue and you know the x-files did a bunch you know the, all those darren morgan episodes of the x-files are like five or six of them they are funny but they're also um even more than the series as a whole because i think david's right that sort of like what if what if two people investigated the twilight zone every week is what the x-files is um, they would have their gi- kind of kind of gimmick episodes, and uh, I, I just uh, it reminded me that a lot of that a lot of that stuff was done first and probably inspired the the, the latter ones by the Twilight Zone and the Inv- Invaders is a great example of that. The uh, the thing that stuck out to me and correct me if I'm wrong uh, did didn't she start it in terms of fighting with them? <laughs> well, she yes, kicks, she kicks the one of. guy she, down. No, the no, no, door. no, 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 yeah. no. I was watching she for that. It in the hole. And the the Earthmen shoot first. No, maybe I, I just couldn't tell when they were. No, no, I think they, they do, were just they do, a, a because I, think, I, was, I was. No, no, I was she's freaking out. She hides behind the trap door, and then the one comes yeah. around the trap door as if and to say, "Hey, blasting. how you doing?" We we. Uh, no, he's got this little mean, like, you know, laser thing like flickering. And she can't. Well, okay, maybe, maybe I'll have to go back and watch. But I'm pretty certain that she just well, and, boots it down the trap door. And and technically, like it, even in that establishing scene where she's still uh, chopping the vegetable of whatever it is. And and if you listen carefully, again, this is a really smart sound design. Uh, oh. There's a little bit of music, right? And, Jerry and Goldsmith. then as she's you know dumping her vegetable into the pot, and she stirs the pot, and there's one melodic tone that suddenly starts just taking over and ri- rising, and it turns out that's the ship landing, and the, all the rest of the music drops out. It's just that sound, and she starts clutching her head. And and that I think that headache is the thing that really triggers it. So yeah, they they totally started it. Agnes Moorhead, you got to say she's straight up magnificent in this. I yeah. mean, oh, God, her facial yes. expressions and the little sounds she makes are they're they're so strange, they're so off. And uh, I mean, when she first hears that spaceship and and she's like, feel you look like she's being deafened or something by it, and she's just acting so oddly that you wonder, well, maybe this woman's maybe she's a little touched. Yeah, yeah. Um, But no, it turns out that her mannerisms are strange because she's a giant space alien. But, you know, (laughs) you aren't supposed to know that until the end. And and of course, she doesn't say anything either, because if she started saying like, unta glieben glauten globen or something, Mm -hmm. it would ruin the surprise. (laughs) But instead, she's got like these little guttural, these guttural noises she makes that are, you know, you could you could see a human doing that. But it, it makes sense at the end when it turns out that she's not. If she's a hermit living off by herself in the wilderness, you know, sure. Yeah, maybe she hasn't made any sound in years. Yeah, I, I do want to say it. It is a little depressing when they reveal that it's space probe number one that landed and was. I know. Up Talk about bad luck. Because, 
It was their first one. <laughs> it's going to set the space program back like years. It's one small step for man. No! Come on, Air Force. You should have known that was the planet of giants. Come on. <laughs> I guess I'm a silly optimist. I was hoping it was a reusable craft. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ninth mission of space probe number one. Okay. Well, that's, that's what I was hoping. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, the go. eye of the beholder, uh, another, another kind of gimmick thing. Like I said, that this is, this is your showcase for the director and for the lighting. Uh, because that's what we've got going on is uh, a woman, is, her face is wrapped in bandages. She's horribly disfigured. This is her last attempt at uh, plastic surgery to correct her horrible disfigurement. And throughout the episode, we don't see her face. And we also don't see the faces of the nurses and doctors who are taking care of her. And you know, I think part of the challenge with a lot of these Twilight Zone episodes with twists is, you know the twists as a modern audience, and you have to kind of put yourself in the mind of the story that they're trying to tell and what would have been like if you didn't know the twist and all of that. And what I kept thinking about this episode is, you can read it as a nice uh, bit of of symbolism, right? Like, she's right. faceless yeah. and they're faceless. And it's only at the end that it's like, yeah, but that's not it. <laughs> it's more It's more than that happening here. And again, this is Douglas Hayes. Uh, bear in mind, they only had like two and a half to three days to film these things. And there's a lot of blocking and camera work for that. Yeah, the blocking and the lighting and the, and the shadows and everything. And the, and the movement. There's a lot of movement in Yeah, this. a lot of camera movement. Yeah, the camera. Uh-huh. Yeah, because, you know, anyone who there there are several points where the doctor gets up and he starts to walk towards the light and the camera has to shift so that the nurse blocks his face. Right. You know, there's a lot of choreography going on in this one and a lot of creativity in in the filming when when they do the unbandaging at the end. uh, Basically, they stuck a fishbowl on the camera lens and wrapped that in bandages so that they could show it cutting away and getting lighter and lighter. And then, you know, cutting back and forth to, you know, seeing the hands cutting the bandages away and things like that but that's a really clever way of getting that that sensation of being wrapped in bandages um for the point of view shot but yeah the whole thing is so smart and it it does sound if if again if you close your eyes and listen to it it almost sounds like an episode of ben casey which i'm sure it was intentional um you know, right down to sort of like the little soap operatic interactions between the doctor and the nurse in the one scene. And um, and then, you know, it takes that sort of interesting thing midway through where, you know, at first you think it's just a normal story, right? And then, oh, here comes a video screen from the, the ceiling and it's time to hear the words of our leader. Yeah, you know what? I had completely forgotten about that whole that Oh, whole the leader. I, yes. I the only thing I remembered from having seen this over and over as a kid was the the a plot you know the the right the horrible faces monsters, messed up yeah. I completely I was shocked when I watched this and th- there's the whole leader <laughs> and the whole like the state well, isn't God stuff and all well, the heavy bits about the freaks being segregated in ghettos right I mean, and that's, that's where it's setting you up for the twist I'm not sure any of that stuff is necessary to be honest I mean it's no 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 I th- no it I is. think it is absolutely it is. necessary because otherwise it's just about like you know, people who look different, but this, but the whole thing about the leader saying stuff like there's glorious conformity and everyone's <laughs> got to be the same. And we cut out everything that's 
different. It is important to have one form, and we must yeah. all conform to it. That's right. Conformity is the key to survival, and he st- says something. Yeah, I feel like that stuff's overkill, though. I mean, you get the message yeah. without it. Maybe. It seems like you're kind of no, hammering the point home too hard. I don't think so. Hard. I thought the best part about that was the was, was their uh, uh, special effects on the uh, fake TV screens yes. that are better than some of the ones I see on TV today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those were nicely done. I love this episode for so many reasons, like the the way it's filmed and, and the dialogue and the way that they they uh, build it up. But but it's it's the the leader stuff that makes me like rewatch this episode because it, it really underlines. Like, I mean, like like when Mitt Romney talked about. Um, self deportation back four years ago, we laughed at him. And but what's going? What happened a couple of days ago is that we have segregation going on in this country, but it's self segregation because we have people on the left who have no idea what's going on with the rest of the country. And we talk about the Fox News bubble and everything and the echo chamber, but we had that on the left where people never went into the country to see. The despair and and people who only have jobs working at Walmart and stuff, and it's that political divide where instead of like the beautiful people and the ugly people being divided, it's like people on the right and the left where they never black people and white people never have lunch together, and people from political parties never like sit down and just talk about stuff, and I think that's what's going on. That's what like one of the things that he's talking about in this episode where the conformity within each political party i think um the one of the things that's going on here i think this is a question right is is the message of this episode you know it's all relative you know it's all in the eye of the beholder we we make these judgments but they're totally arbitrary and they could be reversed and and is that it or is there this extra dimension that the leader stuff gives you which is that this is itself a an oppressive society and that perhaps there's this whole other thing here where everybody is trying to look like the leader or he looks like them and 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 you know is there a larger more terrifying kind of uh conformity that's going on beyond the sort of more gentle conformity of just sort of like look like everybody else like just naturally and that it it adds another dimension i don't know if it's if if if, i think it would probably be fine without it but it adds that whole extra dimension of the fact that this is like a dystopian fascist kind of regime that's happening here with this with this exalted leader giving his speeches on tv that it just it makes it that much scarier and creepier and and that explains her terror right because it's not it's not that she wants this surgery. It's not that she's trying to look beautiful, quote unquote, beautiful on her own. Uh, it's that she knows she's going to be in a lot of trouble if she doesn't look like the, the leader and look like everybody else. She's going to be in trouble if she doesn't. She's going to be segregated. That's the very reason why it detracts from the A yeah, plot maybe. for me, which is that the, it's it's more effective for me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love. I think this is probably one of my favorite episodes of the whole series, and I I enjoy the the leader stuff. It, it's it's all interesting, but I feel like the the message that the main message that he's trying to get across is basically just the you know the relativity of it and i think for me the fact that she's horrified just because you know she's she's a wreck of a woman just because she's been different as opposed to uh she's she's different and that means that she's going to be killed by the state i I think it's much more effective if it's just that she's she's a, a ruined person just because people have always pointed and laughed at her but you know Again, that's all. That's all up to your personal perspective. I, I think it detracts, but it's a great episode. Um, I the brilliance of of uh, 
of having the fact that she's in bandages be used as the ploy to avoid showing the nurses and the doctors' faces is is so so genius. Because I mean, the minute you see this script, you've you've got to be thinking to yourself. How the hell am I going to keep this a secret until the end? You know, I've got 20 minutes to kill, and we've got the doctors and the nurses all talking. What's the excuse I'm going to have to do the ridiculous things where people keep walking in front of each other or the doctors just happens to walk into a shadow at the exact moment hmm. that he turns around? And if that excuse is that she can't see their faces, so neither can we, and so we're just being put in her shoes – that's a great excuse. I mean, that it really that works perfectly for me. And you don't notice it after a while. You know, I mean, there are a couple of scenes where it just sort of jars right back. You know, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, we can't see their faces. But in a lot of cases, there are enough moments where, the, you know, like there's an overhead shot or a long distance shot. And it feels, again, it feels like a normal hospital show of the time. Um, the it, I, I'm not sure if Rod learned the lesson of the show because the end – uh, narration, I, and I noticed this the, the last time I watched it too. Right? He goes, uh, "Now the questions that come to mind: Where is this place? When is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation?" Yeah, and it's like right. Um, you just said beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Rod. Um, <laughs> okay, well, come on. Uh, he was just upset at all the people making fun of his snaggle tooth all those years. <laughs> <laughs> He's just trying to re- restate the premise for the 1960. Uh, TV audience who might have missed right, that. Right. I do think it's a little strange that the woman's deformity apparently includes full makeup. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that necessarily. <laughs> it, well, but I will say, though, that the, the pig-faced doctor idly smoking under his prosthetic as he flirts with a pig-faced yeah, nurse is, might be my favorite single yeah. Twilight Zone image. <laughs> the thing that uh, it definitely worked uh, as far as you know being in her shoes, uh, I found myself stuck with the thought that this was the 11th procedure and mm-hmm. That the the fact that she'd undergone this ten times before, uh, the uh, I was dwelling on the the idea of of you know we see her kind of come unhinged in this of course, uh, but how that's most likely been building over the course of you know the the prior ten failed attempts and uh, and I, I found myself just coming back to that over and over again. Well, her bone structure, flesh type. Many factors prohibit the surgical approach. That's good science. That's just good science right there. So I think <laughs> it's 1960s medical science. I think they're best. probably on the up and up based on that. I was just confused that how, after 11 um, uh, surgeries, that she she just looks flawless, like smooth. <laughs> because really, you would no think, scars. You would all. think that they would be trying to like make her get the pig face right, and that that right. we should see that she's sort of like. But that's not. You know, that's not what they want for the big reveal. But it's like, what have they well, been they doing? Aren't, they that- aren't doing surgery on her. They aren't. They're using some sort of a Is chemical. Is it just makeup? No, they're supposed to be injecting her with some kind of a chemical. Like that, a chemical uh, peel, like to hope that it would it would like have an or, allergic or that reaction it, like, or something? reshapes the face. Well, they, they, or... put a, they could have glued latex to her face back Yeah. yeah. So, like, well, see, her, the, yeah. The, the first time I watched this one with the boys, uh, my older son went, wow, they must not be good plastic surgeons that's you know it's taken them that long and she still looks like ellie may that's not right yeah it is a little strange that if they're just using some sort of i don't know stem cell treatment or some other weird dna based thing that they would have to cover her face for a couple of weeks (laughs) not entirely sure what that's about i we might be overthinking this yeah maybe a little bit let's let's move on to maple street where the monsters, uh, you know, the monsters are due there so this is uh this is a this is a classic so we um we acted this 
out as a play in my sixth grade class, or maybe yeah, sixth grade class. Uh, so I have fond memories of this because it's not you got to get teach kids young that the monster is us. I say, and that's what happens, and especially here. kids. Yeah, yeah. So Claude Claude Aikens, TV Sheriff Lobo, is in this one. Um, and this is the Having classic misadventures as usual. Yes, and this is the classic tale of paranoia, where a spaceship passes overhead. Maybe question mark. Uh, the lights go out uh, occasionally. Lights turn on and cars start and things like that. And the entire neighborhood is convinced. Once one dumb kid tells them about a science fiction story he read, where aliens were among the people during the invasion and looked just like people, uh, everybody turns on each other. They become super paranoid. And, uh, and, uh, bad things happen and there's, and there's a riot. And of course, at the end, the big, uh, the big reveal in the very last shot, as I mentioned earlier, is that the aliens are there, but they're just kind of watching the humans turn on each other and they don't need to do anything more because we are, we are the worst and we will take care of ourselves. And, and then they fly away in the forbidden planet ship. They do. <laughs> You've got to reuse spaceships. Again. There's only one. My big note from this episode is that Charlie is the worst. The, yeah, he's pretty bad. He is the worst. He is a loudmouth... Um, and then, and, and then he, he makes up <laughs> when they start to suspect him, he just immediately just makes up somebody and says, I know who it is. It's the kid. It's the kid. He did it. He's just, he's terrible. He's the worst, well, but everybody's clearly pretty the bad. guy who spends his time looking up at the sky early in the morning. Cause there's something wrong with that kind of a person. Yeah. You'll go outside. Who does that? Or, or working on a radio. Yeah, I love the way that the scapegoat all uh, keeps changing. Yeah. My main note on this one is that this episode really needs to be longer than 20 minutes. Because in order for it to get going, they have to instantly take that kid's comic book plot seriously. After nothing more really has happened than a power outage and a dead car battery. And so the whole thing, for me, comes off as a little bit silly. But, you know, they only have 20 minutes, so what are you going to do? I mean, to be fair, this is what happened after the 1965 New York blackout, so... I'm pretty sure that lasted longer than 15 minutes before everybody yes. started losing their stuff. <laughs> Let's talk about the length for a minute, because this is one of those things, or for 22 minutes, uh, about the Twilight Zone that's interesting, is some of the stories, and I think some of the great stories, they have just enough story to withstand 22 minutes. But they, you can never tell that story over an hour, but over a half hour you can do it, right? Like like uh, The Invaders is a good example, or even Eye of the Beholder. Like Those are short stories. They really benefit from it. Sometimes there's an episode where, where I agree, Steve. I, I look at it and I think, wow, you you have had to do a lot of work to pack this in here to this short time frame. And I, I think the monsters right. are doing Maple Street's a good example of that because this feels like a play to me. This is a great play yes. where it's claustrophobic. Everybody's out on the street and they are turning on each other one by one. And, you know, it's it's it, it, I, that's what I love about it, but it does all happen pretty fast. Like the turnabouts are rapid. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like I like the pacing in this episode. And and you know one of the things I really liked about the the Twilight Zone show that came out in the eighties is that they had the whole hour and they could tell as many stories. Right. Like two or three, and then if if the story was five minutes long, they gave it five minutes, and then you were done. Yep. Or uh, and and they didn't have to pad things out. They didn't have to stretch things. And and I think that that worked really well because you never knew when the twist was coming. Right. Yeah, I mean, the the fourth season of the original show was all hour-long shows. And they're boring. Yeah, there are a few that are okay, 
but even the best of them are just okay. Yeah. And and there's a reason why they went back to half an hour. It just feels like maybe an extra 10 minutes on this one yeah. would be just about right, because the ramp up is just so fast. It was just enough time for me to, uh, in 15 minutes, forget all about Pete, who walked over to the next block. Oh, poor Pete. <laughs> you shot oh, God, Pete Van yeah. Horn. I think it's a mistake to zoom in on his hammer at the end. But I feel like <laughs> oh. I feel like at this point, this is, this is the only season one episode we did, and I think at this point they're still making the assumption that maybe audiences really aren't quite clued into what's happening yet and so we got to make it real easy for him i keep having to remind myself on the hammer thing that uh you know this is a this is a pre-dvr world so maybe they you know had you know dwelled on things a little more because you only had one shot at, at uh getting everybody's attention and telling them they couldn't run it back yeah I just I love the I love the dark view of human nature here and and like I said <laughs> earlier you know there could be no aliens at the end of this and it would just be that story right of a blackout makes everybody turn on one another and the aliens in the end just are adding this little twist of like look science fiction we can take over this whole but we can take them all over because we're 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 exploiting how terrible humanity is and that like just adds a little extra extra thing to it but I, I do like this for that for that and i'll make another reference to another episode the my um one of my very favorite episodes of doctor who is uh called midnight by russell t davis and it is very much the monsters are due on maple street in a claustrophobic in a in a uh, a kind of a a, a space kind of like a subway car bus that is stuck somewhere and everybody turns on each other and it's a very similar kind of thing and i love it and it's dark and it's all about sort of how human nature is is to be awful and turn on each other and uh and i was i every time i i think of uh, every time i watch monsters are doing maple street i think of midnight and vice versa because they're they're very similar um and wonderfully written pl- sort of play structure uh Low budget because Midnight is one set essentially, <laughs> and yet uh, great acting performances and uh, and you just get to see all the worst in human nature, which I enjoy. You know, sometimes those episodes where where it is the fear of the unknown working on you, uh, it's very subtle. This one is pretty much you know, boom, fear of the unknown, something's happening, what the hell's going on, and everybody freaks out, which is kind of cool. Well, this episode in the shelter, which is uh, which is similar, where yes, they yes. have the the bomb shelter and uh, oh, yeah. they all turn on each other. To uh, anyway, it, it reminds me a lot of like the German movies that came out in, like nineteen twenty five, nineteen thirty, like between World War One and World War Two, like Cabinet of Doctor Caligari and Metropolis and M and the Blue Angel, where you have this veneer of civilization. Everyone's acting really nice, but then you just scratch right below the surface, and then there's all this festering hate and rage and 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 anger and then just touch something and and it all blows up and it kind of feels like america's a little bit like that now way to bring down the room (laughs) (laughs) sorry i swear i know who it is it's frank it's frank exactly see (laughs) see it's like not not that hard it's like oh he doesn't look like us oh he's just oh what's he doing in this country and like that's what they do in this episode it's like oh well they're they're not from around here they're from like iowa or something i think the real moral of this one is uh if you leave a group of people and you come back and it's pitch blackout Say hi or say something. something. (laughs) Say anything. Yeah, remember me. It's me, Pete Van Horn. Point at your hip and say, "Hey, remember the hammer from before?" A couple, a couple things I wanted to mention about this one because it is an early one. It's it's the only season one episode. This is the only episode that we watched with the original music, which. When I was a kid, you know, the, the classic Twilight Zone theme is so iconic and, and, uh, 
and everybody recognizes it at the drop of a hat. Virtually everybody from, you know, five to 55 or 105 can, can just, you know, hum it. But, and, and I never used to really think much of this, the original Bernard, Bernard Herman uh, opening music, which is mostly just harp. But man, I love it. It's great. It, I think it almost it almost works better as a theme song for me than the than the little bit too much on the nose uh, avant garde thing that they eventually switched over to. Yeah, that they they switched over to Marius Constant. Marius Constant, yeah, yeah. which is really cool. But yeah, the Bernard Herrmann one is is unsettling. It really does kind of put you in the mood for something weird that's to come. Yeah. But it's also beautiful. Mm-hmm. But you it know, is. it gives you that sense that something is lurking just below the surface, mm-hmm. which I think is great. It is. And then the other, only other thing I wanted to mention with this being an early episode is that uh, the ending narration ends with the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And I think that might be, I didn't go back and look, but that might be Serling's first open admission that this is pointed social commentary <laughs> that he's doing here. I, this isn't I just silly is. sci-fi for the kids. This is, a, I'm, I'm pointing at you and saying, mm-hmm. you're the real monsters, people. Yep. Tune in again next week. Think, think about it. CBS out. <laughs> Makes you think, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. We're all the monster. I'm not. Let's move on to the cornfield. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Home of, of Anthony. It's, it's very good. It's good. It's a real good it's, thing it's you good. did. It's real it's good. good Pick, picking this real episode. Good choice of episode. Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman's in it. And, and Bill so Mooney. Great. Great Bill Mooney. I haven't watched this one since I... Uh, became a parent, and I. One of the things that just <laughs> amuses me about about it's a good life is, you know, kids are monsters. He's just <laughs> Anthony, who's got this all powerful. It's like really, it's like what if you had somebody who was all powerful mental powers and was just a kid? And Anthony, you know, he's not. He's not a. I mean, the, the whole beginning is he's a monster. This monster is a little boy. <laughs> but on another level, it's like he's not really. I mean, he's n- no more than any other child. He he. All all kids are monsters, uh, at least from time to time. The problem is that he is all powerful, and so he can conjure anything and make things go away with his imagination, which has led everybody around him to be in this town that's been cut off from the rest of the world. All that's left is his little town, and they're all but terrified. He hasn't grown a conscience yet. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. He's still the completely ruled by his his whims, you know, child of six that you would not want in charge of anything. No. All the stuff that he's doing is kind of awesome. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's like making he's like made t- TV go away and he just yeah. produces TV on his mind with his mind. Yeah. And what does he watch? He watches dinosaurs, dinosaurs. fighting. Yeah, yeah, I would I, love I've got to, to agree watch with you there. on TV. That's the only okay. That scene is great because everyone everyone looks completely horrified by the stop motion dinosaur like, show dinosaur, he's making. I it looks really good. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, that looks awesome. Like, at the beginning of the episode, he's like making horrible monsters, which are like three headed frogs or something. It's like, that's cool. That's really <laughs> cool. But then he kills it. I'll make him dead now. I'm tired of playing with him. Somebody get Frank a three headed gopher. He <laughs> takes he takes a guy. And he like makes him into a jack in the box. That's awesome. I mean, like, yeah, it's like, well, I might, I like, might have to terrible. stop you it's there. Like, <laughs> I mean, but, but it's like, see, I think, I think what the, the town people misinterpreted this, What they really needed was like somebody like me to show up and say like, wow, can you do a four headed frog? How about five, six, seven? Mm. And then like, wow, he's like making all this like really cool stuff for me. Then, He's like distracted by doing that. And, and then, then you hit him in the head with a bottle. Exactly. Someone else can sneak up. But like, 
like me and Anthony on an afternoon, like making cool stuff. It's like, Hey, you know, um, spaceships from alien uh, aliens. Like, can you make those in the sky? Yeah, sure. And it's like, we do that like for, for hours. That would be awesome. Well, and this, this episode is kind of unusual in that it's got one of the longest opening narrations in the whole series. And there's a twist in the opening narration, right? Yeah. Above. Yeah, it's it's really nice how, you know, he sort of introduces you to the town. He says, you're going to recognize it. And it's this very small town. And all of a sudden, the rest of the world disappeared and the town was left by itself. And then he starts introducing you to the people and he gets, you know, and, and mentions that there is a monster and they have to think happy thoughts. And then it gets it gets to the point where, you know, this particular monster can read minds. You see, he knows every thought. He can feel every emotion. Oh, yes. I did forget something, didn't I? I forgot to introduce you to the monster. This is the monster. And you see Bill Mooby sitting Little there Billy. with his hand on his fist, looking really yeah, innocent and yeah. sweet. His name is Anthony Fremont. He's six years old with a cute little boy face and blue guileless eyes. But when those eyes look at you, you'd better start thinking happy thoughts because the mind behind them is absolutely in charge. This is the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and there's no, there's no artful, like, you know, you know, the next signpost up ahead is, I mean, it's just, it's like, this is the Twilight Zone. Yeah, that's uh, that tells me that he learned from his experience of making uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Screw it. Exposition's fine. We'll just lay it all out there, and now we can get into the meat of the show. Yeah. This one, I think this, I have to say, this is probably my favorite episode of the show. You're a bad man. <laughs> it's This is the one that still manages to make me feel dread in the pit of my stomach. The, the tangible desperation oh. on all of the characters as they walk around on eggshells is so tense. And the way he casually throws things out, like, I'll make him dead now. I'm tired of playing with him. Or, uh, that's why I made him go on fire, he cheerfully says about some neighbor. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just so horrifying. And, and it's, it's monstrous even for early 60s TV. Man, it's rough. I mean, it's monstrous even for modern day TV. And, and this, this, by the way, this is the one that, that freaked me out the most as a kid. And it's mainly because of Dan Hollis's head on the Jack in the Box, yeah. bobbing back and forth <laughs> with that impassive expression. Oh, did that freak me mm. out, but good when I was a kid. <laughs> And and the looks on his parents' faces through the whole show. I mean, Cloris Leachman is, I mean, she's wonderful. And John Larch, who, I mean, he had a career through 60s and early 70s TV of looking nervous and guilty. And this <laughs> is like the most nervous he ever looked. It, it's amazing. Oh, he's great. Well, they gave yeah. birth to this monster that like right. killed everybody. Yeah, and I can understand why they won't kill him. It seems strange that maybe like the young guy won't do it, but I mean they're just all terrified. I, that makes some sense, but yeah. it is it's painful at the end. It's kind of a, a a high noon sort of situation where Dan Hollis he goes out on the limb. He gets yeah. he gets everybody all ready. Says any one of you anytime now go ahead and clock him on the head with a bottle or a lamp or something, and no one has the balls and to do no it. One they does completely it. abandon no. him, and then he's a jack in the box, and he gets wished into the cornfield. And oh man, it just it tears me up, man. This whole episode is just. It's it's hard for me to watch. Almost, it's so tense. It reminds me of the um, second pilot of Star Trek, where no man has gone before, where uh, they get that mm. moment, that the indelible moment, where Gary Mitchell's eyes turn back to normal, and it's like the moment that you can get to kill him, and then and Kirk hesitates, and then the the moment is lost. That's and, too late. And, and Spock is like, "Kill him." That that's the moment here, that tense moment where he's like, "I'm distracting him. You could all kill him now." And nope. <laughs> <laughs> they, nope. nope. Comes, comes right out and says it. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. No one will do it. When, uh, oh, when, no when Serling it. passed away, he was on the third draft of a feature film version of the story. 
and never got made. You know, I'm not sure it's it would be necessary. I mean, I don't 30 minutes so. or yeah. 20 minutes or whatever it is is yeah. perfect for this. All you would be doing is adding more horror moments, but you know, yeah, you don't I need don't them. think I could hack it to be honest no. with you. This well, this no. is rough as it is. No, I thought it was perfect. It does it without showing you anything. I mean, it, 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 he they tell us he has a three-headed gopher and he's holding this really foul-looking tail mm-hmm. up in the air. But you can kind of envision this poor thing. You know? <laughs> Doesn't know how it got called into being or that it's about to be killed just randomly, probably in some horrible way. Ah, oh, it's great. So one of the things I like about this, and, and I, have to, I have to mention now, and I, I figure if I don't mention it, Frank's going to mention it. So I'm going to mention it now, Frank. Uh, <laughs> they made a sequel to this. Oh, it's still a good line. The Forrest Whitaker version. So here's the, here's the problem with it. In that one, it's like many years later, and he's got, Anthony's got a son uh, or daughter, and uh, people are still living in the Played town. Played by his daughter. Played by Bill Mummy's daughter, and, and, and Cloris Leachman's in it. Here's the problem. One of the things that's great about It's a Good Life, this original episode, is the tension about the fact that while Anthony is very good at destroying things, he can't really create things. And that you see that where it's like... um the supplies are dwindling, right? right. And, and and the last scene where he makes it snow and they're going to lose half the crops. Like, part of the tension of this town is not just that Anthony is a monster who is who you have to think good thoughts around and all that. It's that they are completely cut off from the rest of the world or the rest of the world is gone. We've been out of bar soap for a year. You know that. Exactly right. They're running out of everything. Yeah. So the sequel is dumb because it just doesn't talk about that. And it's like, no, people, are, people live for many years years with Anthony in the town and it's like no that's what's terrifying about it is Anthony is a force of destruction he can't make things and so they are all gonna die I think what I one of the reasons that I like this is the claustrophobia aspect of it that is not just that there's a monster but you are stuck with him in this little pocket universe and your supplies are dwindling and it's you know that just ratchets it up another whole level yeah you sense that Peaksville's got maybe like a six month period left and then everybody is either dead or the lack of crops have killed them all they've starved to death yeah like even if Anthony doesn't kill them they'll starve to death Mm -hmm. yeah and they're already out of soap so but you talk about the dark ending. It's just amazing, right? The snow comes down. They're going to lose half the crop. Shh. Yeah. It's good that you did that, Anthony. It's real great. And he's just it's smiling. a good thing you did. Yeah. Smiling with his uh, chin on his, oh. on his hand, looking off into the distance with a wistful smile. Wow. Meanwhile, Aunt Amy, who he's given a stroke or something, smiles in the background. Right. Aunt Amy. That's, yeah. She was the only one who had any control over him, but then she pushed it. Yep. Because yeah. the thing is, like, he can only, he can't make normal things. He can only make crazy things, like the three-headed gopher. Right. Like, if he if he uh, he kills the corn with the uh, the snow, but he can't make normal corn. No. But he might be able to make like weird poison corn. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that he can't make things. I mean, the the sense that I get is that he created the gopher at the beginning. Although it's possible that he turned he turned it into a monster from a regular gopher, like he did with the pigs. Maybe. And it's also a monstrous three-headed thing. Like he can maybe he can create things. Things, but they're not any good, right? Yeah. yeah. Like maybe yeah. the corn would taste like something bad. Candy corn. It'd be death corn. Although he might just do that because it was funny. A shout out to Jerome Bixby, who wrote the original short story, who like is kind of forgotten, even though he's yeah. the guy that wrote the Mirror Mirror episode of Star Trek and created like Spock with a beard and everything. He wrote uh, Fantastic Voyage and created that whole genre of like miniaturizing people and also, it the terror from outer space, which is kind of the basis of of the alien movies. 
and and he's kind of forgotten, which I think is a real shame. So, uh, Nick of Time. I hate this episode. <laughs> Me too. Why did we watch this one? I think out of all these episodes, I think this is the only clunker. And Rod Serling once said, you know, a third of the episodes are probably really good, a third of them are okay, and the third of them are for the dogs. And I thought this was one of the ones that's for the dogs, even though I love Twilight Zone and, and Richard Matheson and, and uh, William Shatner. And I really want to know... Who voted for this episode? Why? <laughs> the answer is Dan and David both voted for Nick of Time, so they're going to have to explain themselves. Justify. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes because yeah, us. I like terrible things. <laughs> no, there. <laughs> well, Shatner is Shatner, and you know, there's only so much you can do. But um, this is one of the episodes where. Maybe it's supernatural, maybe it's not. Yes. But it works either way, and it works beautifully if it's not supernatural. It's about yep. the dangers of blind faith. Uh, and superstition, right? And superstition, right? And and there is nothing supernatural going on if if you want to see it that way. If you want to say, okay, the little fortune teller machine is is controlled by Satan and it's keeping them in this town – but it's not. It's just Shatner's character gets a fortune from it and goes, hey, I'm connecting this to things that are actually happening. I'm justifying the Oracle. Yep. I'm figuring out what's going to happen. It's like a cold reading or something. It's fraudulent. Right. Uh, yeah, it's all, it's all in his head. It's all superstition and magical and, and he gets the more, the more that happens, the more he slips into the mania of it and his wife is trying to pull him back out and finally breaks, breaks the spell near the end. And at the very end... You know, they're like, okay, okay, we're going to walk out of here. And as they walk out, we see another couple come in and sit down. And, and the guy just does the fortune machine and says, can we leave town today? <laughs> and the machine basically says, it is not likely or something like that. And, and it's like, okay, here's you just what see happens. Him look at the slip and you're they stuck. both just deflate. <laughs> right, right. That's the, that's the one part of this episode I like is the couple at the end, that like 10 seconds at the end when the couple comes in trying to escape the town. Okay, Dan, Dan, why did you pick uh, Nick of Time? Well, for me, it was definitely, uh, there was a nostalgic element to it. So I, I definitely remembered it more fondly than I probably think of it now after having mo just rewatched <laughs> it. But because uh, I think this definitely fits. We were talking earlier about, um, you know, the, the episodes that fill the time just right versus those that are crammed in versus those, I think, like this one that are that are don't have quite enough material for it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think you know, it, yeah. it has a great button at the end. And and, you know, that last, you know, four minutes of it is is fantastic but there is you know there is a little bit of a slog even with a 25 minute show uh i think i tapped the apple tv remote a couple of times to see where we were at uh somewhere in the middle of it yeah i mean the the acting is not great well though shatner seems to have actually learned his lines for this one though yeah he's, he's not halting Let's, Shatner's uh, doing a good job. In let's this detail. We get the itemized bill of their time at the diner at one point. I sure. yeah, appreciated sure. that. Yeah. You're now looking at the world's youngest office manager. <laughs> Ooh, ah, really? Wow. <laughs> For me, I, I do think there, there is one thing that's kind of redeeming about it uh, um, from a from a social standpoint. That uh, you know, at the, at the time it was set, the idea that a newlywed bride. Uh, would be the one to, you know, stand up to her, her new husband who's the breadwinner and got this big promotion and all that. And it's, it really is her that finally snaps him out of it and, and pulls him out of this, you know, this, this superstitious mania and, uh, and is the one to say that she wants to make things happen together, not, uh, just find out from some machine. 
and that uh, I, I thought that was uh, there's there's something there that uh, especially for uh, for that time in the early sixties. But she's clearly a very poor decision maker because she married this obvious lunatic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and she knows yes. it from the start because yeah. she spends the entire episode right from the very moment they sit down at the booth and there's the little fair fortune telling machine there. She spends that entire episode looking like she's full of regrets. What did I do? I really married this clown. Seriously? Yeah, I, I think I think she starts acting the story about fifteen minutes before she should. <laughs> right? She knows yeah. where the story's going, whereas she should actually kinda like him at the beginning. It's like, Oh, you're so silly keeping putting putting more pennies in this stupid machine. It's hard to be the voice of reason. The voice Always. of reason never gets to drive the plot, never gets to all the voice of reason gets to do is say like, no, that's stupid. I thought her initial regret was was just not uh, taking up the diner owner on his. He was really pushing that chicken fried steak. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it sounded good. Man. Takers. I watched it hungry. Oh, and I was like, no, do yeah, the chicken fried I mean, steak. It sounds good. Man, Shannon <laughs> yeah. just wants a like a little sandwich. Come on. Yeah, it's like a it's, like a lettuce and tomato it. sandwich. Yeah, he gets too. like a BLT. He's or watching his weight. I mean, there's not even any friggin' meat in it. Oh. But you got to be felt to be the world's youngest office manager. Well, the the problem, Steve, is that is that if he eats the chicken fried steak, you know what's going to happen is that he's going to have to switch from his standard office manager shirt into a slightly more spacious wraparound office manager blouse halfway (laughs) through the season. (laughs) Man, if only Shatner had eaten more tomato and lettuce sandwiches over the course of his career. I, I am impressed that they order an iced coffee at the end. Yeah, that's oh, like, that really wow, threw me. That's that's their second iced coffee. They yeah, had she iced has multiple. For, it was in the itemized bill. It at was the on the docket too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I, so anyway, I mean, we we went over it. What what I like about this episode is that is that it could be nothing supernatural at all, and it is a nice skewering of of people who are super superstitious like really superstitious and like oh i don't want to touch this or i i don't want to step on this or things like that and this is the this is the extreme which is you know you believe in this thing and it will just rule your life and it's stupid and we should just leave and and uh the push and pull between the two of them i i like that but yeah it goes on a little too long yes yeah. There's no real tension to it because from the start it's clear that Shatner is a dingus and I don't care. <laughs> well, and forever. And you have to admit a story that is based on this is stupid. We should leave. Is I mean, okay. I'll, I'll grant you that. Yeah, I just think it could have been executed better. So we're gonna leave Nick of Time behind now because pe- people have regrets. And uh, the last one on the list of assigned uh, shows was Night of the Meek. So we go from one of my least favorite episodes to one of my very favorite episodes. So yeah, I love this. So we have Art Carney as the two. as the uh, drunk uh, department store Santa Claus. Th- this is special in a lot of ways in that it's a it's got the Twilight Zone form. But uh, and you're waiting for the horrific twist. And in fact, halfway through, you get the sort of the twist where he's like going to be arrested for stealing everything. And in the end, the twist is kind of delightful and fun and not dark at all, which I I find great. The only problem I have with this episode is this comes, I looked it up, from a span of six episodes where they thought they would save some money by shooting it on video. Video And it looks like a live TV stage production from the 50s. It It would be so much better if it was on whatever they normally used for film stock. It's a shame because it, it would feels be, all wrong. It, it does, but it's still great. This episode, I think, is a great example of the really sappy side of Serling. And the thing yes. about yeah. Serling's, Serling's scripts, whether it be for his earlier work or for Twilight Zone, for pretty much anything, there's a stark comparison between him and Matheson and Charles Beaumont, who we really should have done an episode 
with him writing, but okay. The thing about Serling is every one of these episodes that he writes, there's a real, like even the ones that are dark, there's a sense that he's, he's trying to tell us this because he has hope for the human condition. You know, you, you always get the, the, the sense that, you know, even at, even at our darkest, there's, he, he's really pushing for us. And uh, this, this one is just an example of him just outright going for sap, straight, straight up. And uh, in the midst of watching a bunch of other sort of more depressing episodes, it really comes across as unbelievably sweet. Yeah, I think that's what I really appreciate. I mean, I mean, uh, the sympathy for for poor people, and he talks about you know, there's, you get nothing for Christmas because we don't have any money, and the only thing that comes down the chimney at Christmas time is is more poverty. And like the only way that we can respond to this is by having compassion to, for each other with love for other people by like stopping when someone's trying to turn left and letting them go or like stopping when people are trying to like cross the street. And that's what we need to do is like respond with love and compassion. Even though it's done on videotape of those six episodes, this is the only one that's even worth watching more than once. It is just mm. so wonderful. And even at that, I don't know that it would work as well if it weren't for Art Carney. I mean, Carney's how great. beautiful is that casting? And he, he is that character. He just lives it with with a look. He doesn't even have to say anything. And you know his, his life story. Yep. Yeah. The biggest problem with this episode for me is that the poor kids don't look poor enough. <laughs> I, I need the shorthand of the kids. I mean, they, they're very well-dressed and very bundled up, and they don't look dirty at all. And they just... They're not me, ragamuffins. You, you know, and I, I understand that's not really, you know, you don't necessarily... Not all, not all poor people wear rags, you know, <laughs> but for shorthand, you know, when they walk up to him and they're demanding gifts, I need to see them actually look destitute or else they're just some kids who are demanding gifts, you know, <laughs> especially when one of them is asking for a job for daddy. Later, though, after after asking for 14 other things that are more right. traditional little kid demands, <laughs> they finally get to the, the thing that actually points out that they're hurting, you know. I totally agree on this being very rewatchable. I think this is, you know, it was it was a pleasant surprise uh, to to come, you know, be refamiliarized with this one. And I kind of keep a uh, partly and thanks to this show a a very eclectic mix of things I try to watch every holiday season. And I'm going to make sure that the, this episode gets inserted into that uh, yep. that cue. This is a good one for that. There are a couple things I wanted to note about this one. One is as somebody who loves Miracle on 34th Street, I like that this is like. The reverse of Miracle on 34th Street, where <laughs> sure. you know, in, in Miracle, uh, there's a there's a drunk Santa, right, who loses his job, and then they hire the real Santa Claus. And here, the drunk Santa loses his job and discovers the spirit of Christmas and becomes Santa Claus. It's like that's another path to being Santa. You could do one or the other. <laughs> there's there's some options. I I really enjoy that. And then the other thing I want to mention is that his name is Corwin, and that is mm -hmm. a uh, that is a reference to to Norman Corwin, who was a uh, I think mentor of Rod Serling's and was a blacklisted screenwriter. He he came out of the world of radio. Yeah, and and also notable because there's a Babylon 5 character named Corwin for the same reason because mm -hmm. he was also a mentor of uh, J. Michael Straczynski. So every time I hear a character huh. Corwin, I go, oh yeah, I guess that's Norman Corwin. Yeah. They're referencing Norman Corwin there. Yeah, he was hugely inf influential. If you, if you look into his uh, Wikipedia page, um, he, he was one of the pioneers of doing more than just soap operas and stuff on radio. Um, you know, we all know Orson Welles and War of the Worlds and everything. 
he was doing what Corwin, he was following Corwin's lead on that stuff. There's just cans in there. Yeah. Yeah, what's with all these cans? <laughs> it's just full of cans. It's so great, though. That That's such a great moment of like, hey, you know, hey, you people who are jerks, you know what you get? Garbage. <laughs> you make garbage come out of the magic bag. How do you feel now? <laughs> you mentioned how great Art Carney is in this, and this is really just one in a long line of great Christmas shows that he did, culminating in the Star Wars Holiday Special, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but John Fiedler, no. Piglet, his own bad self, oh, yeah. oh my God. is oh. superb. Yep. And the moment where he's pulling cans out of the bag and then he pulls out an upside down cat is superbly <laughs> funny. <laughs> and then what does he want? He just wants some, what, cherry brandy? Some cherry brandy, yeah. vintage 1903. Yep. It was, oh, That's right. I, and, and our Cardi's response is, oh, good year. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What I love about this episode is that, like, in, in a lot of the other uh, Twilight Zone episodes, there's this fantastic element, and people are, like, scared and horrified by it. But here he's like, wow, I get to be Santa Claus? That's awesome. Yeah. Whereas you have that movie, The Santa Claus, where a guy turns into Santa Claus. He's like, no, no, that's <laughs> right. terrible. Yeah, there's never a holy crap moment here, is there? He just, the, the bag falls over. He sees there are presents and he just starts shoving them back in and runs out into the street and he's ready to start handing them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like he was Santa and he got drunk and forgot. You know, it's sort of like, <laughs> it, it, re, it reminds him. He's like, oh, yeah, that's what I do. Oh, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is one where it's not fear of the unknown, but it is still the unknown working on him. And he's like, what? A bag full of gifts? Yeah, well, he's loaded, so he's ready yeah. to embrace it. The only other note I have is that uh, this is one that really would have benefited from the original theme being in the end credits, because <laughs> you yeah. have this very sweet moment at the end yeah. where he flies off in his sled and uh, John Fiedler says, God bless, whatever it is, miracles or something. And then suddenly, it's completely discordant. Like, oh, it's creepy. So I mentioned the twist earlier. The, the twist is like literally he goes down an alley and there's a sled and reindeer and an elf. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just so wild. It's just like, oh, okay. All right. I, I was impressed that they actually got real reindeer. And a real elf. Nope. Just some kid in an elf suit. But <laughs> It's a great episode. I love this episode. It made me made me laugh that that's that's his thing. Is like you get to be Santa Claus now. Come on, well, let's go once again. He's not he's not concerned about it at all. Nope. He just hops in the seat and says, "Let's go." No, and what I like about it too is, it, <laughs> you know, I I kind of feel like the modern version of this story would reveal that he was Santa Claus all along or something like that. And it's like no, <laughs> no, Santa Claus is you know like you now. You could be Santa Claus if you truly have the holiday spirit. They they might come for you and put you in the sled i don't know i mean he's an unrepentant right. drunk but he's got the spirit he does he's santa now he's got a lot of he's spirits got a lot of spirits <laughs> yeah that's for sure well i mean most uh, well, most twilight zone episodes like people fight the twilight zone and lose they're just crushed at the end they're, they're like you know killed by the the devil doll or you know whatever and and this episode like has a happy ending which is just so bizarre that's great and and the way that it just it talks about compassion and and love for mm -hmm. humanity it just it uh, just ah, warms my heart yeah there are a fair number that end wistfully but i think this may be one of the very few that ends straight up happily so uh, now that we've reached the end of these episodes we should say we didn't watch Aww. the ones that everybody know everybody knows well we kind of did these are these are all well, sort of, we, yeah, we, well -known we all separately watched and we just didn't talk about them 
Yeah, I watched about 20. Well, even even the ones that we talked guys. about, these are all fairly well-known episodes. It's I mean, true. You probably lay these plots out to people. But Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and To Serve Man seemed so obvious that we didn't go into it. I will say that I did watch To Serve Man, and I thought it was really <laughs> not good. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I, I thought To Serve Man was kind of dumb. And uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet is, is fine. That's That's got lots of Shatnering. Oh, it's got all the Shatner. Actually, no, you know, the nice thing about Nightmare at 20,000 Feet is I, I like the end because you really are set up for it to be, he's a madman, nobody will ever believe him. Yeah. And the last line is basically like, oh, but then they're going to see what was on the wing and they're going to realize that it was really a monster. The end. Goodbye. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's different. And that's the key, right? He regains his sanity. He proves he's sane, at least to yeah. us. Yeah. And that's why, you know, as good as John Lithgow is in the movie... Um, it doesn't work because, yeah, he they think he's insane, and then he gets driven away by Dan Aykroyd at the end. Yeah, but see, the cat wasn't really talking. He just thought uh, the uh, cat uh. was talking. <laughs> we as viewers were taking his perspective oh, no. when we saw that thing that was peeled up on the wing. And so, Do you want to do a bring out your dead round of episodes we love all right so let's let's i'm going to take david's suggestion before we go and wrap it up if there are other episodes of the twilight zone that you want to put a, a shout out to now would be a good time david what this, uh, this is a hugely influential show for me i you know i just love the series but if i had to narrow it down i would i would it's hard to pick between jack klugman's episodes i love hmm. all of them and for different reasons um there is a scene in in praise of pip which kills me it killed me before i had children but now that i do it is just gut-wrenching but uh and and a game of pool is terrific and and, anyway but it's it's a passage for trumpet where he plays a trumpeter who's gonna give up he's you know nothing is working for him he's just gonna walk out in the street and kill himself and he runs into who might be the angel gabriel who talks him down and it is just the 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 the, the the span of of heartbreak to joy and all the emotions in between that Klugman does with his face it is astonishing. I love the Jack Klugman episodes. All right, you take the Jack Klugman episodes. All right, Frank, what did we miss that you love? Two the the Howling Man, which is the one where they capture Satan. And the the obsolete man. Oh yeah. Oh, I, lo- I love that. It's so preachy. Um, <laughs> no, 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 but the, well, but, but in like, a good way. In a good but, way. But in a good way. In a, in a good way. It's about the importance of books. I can get behind that. That's right. Yeah. And and again, uh totalitarian uh, states. And you got Fritz Weaver. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah. All right, Dan, what are your what are ones do we miss that you love? Well, for me, I it's I've had an opportunity recently uh, in in recording my show to catch up on one genre that I don't think we hit tonight, and that's the the war uh, genre, the kind of the military episodes. And I've been fascinated in rewatching some recently about uh, realizing that in a time before PTSD was acknowledged as a as an actual condition, and um, and what the effects of uh, of of being a fighting man in wartime were in world war two and, uh, in Korea immediately preceding, uh, the show being on the air. Uh, it's, it, it has been very interesting for me to watch some of the episodes where very clearly the, the writing staff, uh, Serling himself, others working through some of their own issues, um, and, and exposing some of this in, in a time pre Vietnam when, uh, you know, people hadn't seen war on TV, 
so much. And so uh, the episode that comes to mind is uh, A Quality of Mercy mm. um, mm, from yeah. uh, season three. It's uh, uh, And we've talked about all the Star Trek uh, uh, cast in there. Leonard Nimoy is in that one. Um, and uh, in, a, in a very young, um, uh, oh, well, his name escapes me at the moment, Dean Stockwell. The only disturbing thing about some of these, uh, to me, looking back, was there's there's some pretty blatant, you know, uh, casual racism of the time uh, in in depicting uh, Japanese soldiers and and some of that. But uh, but the message about the horrors of war and all that, I think, is uh, is a great thing that they hit on hit upon a few times. But that's one episode that sticks out for me. All right, uh, Steve, what about you? Oh, I've got a lot of dead. I'll go through them quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, mostly I like the real creepy ones. Those are the ones that always stuck in my head as a kid. And, uh, so I'll just go through those, most of those. Um, the after hours in which Anne Francis is a mannequin, but she doesn't know it. That one's super creepy. Uh, something in the dark, which I haven't seen in years and I feel like probably isn't as good as I remember it, but that's the one where Robert Redford, uh, is trying to get in. He's an injured, he's an injured policeman or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Nothing, nothing in the dark. The woman outside is nothing, oh, not, in, nothing the in the dark. That's it. That's it. And uh, the woman in the house is afraid to let him in because she's afraid to die. And it turns out he is, in fact, death, but he's compassionate, um, is really solid in my in my recollection. But uh, I will watch it again and probably hate it. Uh, Living Doll. Everybody okay. remembers Living Doll. That's the Talkie Tina episode. Or Telly Savalas. Um, no, he's a jerk. He deserves it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's definitely you root for the Who doll in that you, one. Until the very end. I'm not end. your daddy. <laughs> I never root for the doll. Uh, yeah, well, you wouldn't. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, Long Distance Call, which is an earlier Bill Mooney episode where he talks to his dead grandmother on the toy phone. Oh, yeah. And she wants him to join her. Yeah, that's good and freaky. Oh, yeah. uh, two, which is uh, Elizabeth Montgomery and Charles Bronson fight- fighting it out in a post-apocalyptic. Uh, the Dummy, because it has a dummy in it, and the guy turns into the dummy at the end, and it's really freaky. Oh. It totally traumatized me. Uh, another good conformity-based one, number 12, looks just like you. I'm a yes. great fan of that one. Uh, the Masks, in which the guy forces his ne'er-do-well family to wear different masks to, that represent their various foibles uh, as the will is read. And then at the end, they take off the masks and their faces are permanently molded into the shape of whatever it was. That's a good one. And then the one, I, another one that I haven't seen in years, but I remember being very moving when I was a kid, is The Big Tall Wish. Uh, in which the young boy um, wishes for the down-on-his-luck fighter to win a particular fight, and he does, but then the guy refuses to believe that the wish had anything to do with it, and he suddenly finds himself flat on his back in the ring, and it turns out that because he didn't believe in the wish, uh, he ended up losing the fight, and uh, that's a good one. Yeah. That's it. So I'm going to be a monster. We're all the monster, Jason. We are all the monsters. (laughs) Uh, And I'm going to say... You know what has a what, what has a surprisingly number or good number of stories? It's the 1985 revival of the Twilight Zone, where you can find oh, such excellent stories as The Star, Shatter Day, Paladin of the Lost Hour, Wordplay, A Message from Charity, A Matter of Minutes, an episode that is not that great, and yet I think about it at least once a month. I think about this random story from the 1985's Twilight Zone. They did a Cold Equations adaptation that's pretty good, and yeah. the best, perhaps, episode title ever, Crazy as a Soup Sandwich. So, um, that's, that's, that's Joe Straczynski. That's, that's Harlan Ellison, but uh, there's some really good ones in there. It is an 80s show. It, you know, They made some bad mistakes as well, but I think the, the tragedy of it is, I think they creatively were pretty solid, and they had some um, tone issues 
with uh, CBS, Big Shock, and the network kind of lost support for it, and then they basically sold it off into syndication and gave up, and it's too bad, because there were actually some very good stories, and as mentioned earlier, the advantage of the hour-long format, what they would do is they would do these uh, various-length ones, so they have some short, short ones that are like little, almost like little jokes that go for five minutes and are done, that were, there's there's a really good one where I think Ron Glass is the devil, um, mm-hmm. that's really great, so... Uh, don't poo-poo the, the 80s Twilight Zone. Um, it, it's not the same kind of thing as the one from the 60s, but there's some good stuff there, too. So that's that's my plug. Palette of the Lost Hour is one of my very favorite yeah, things Harlan of Ellison. all. Also Harlan also Ellison. Also Harlan Ellison, yeah. Um, with, with Danny Kaye. Uh, also, I'll put in a plug for the opening credits of the 80s Twilight Zone. It's really creepy and weird and cool, and they have a stylized version of the theme song performed by the Grateful Dead. And uh, there's like a, <laughs> a, extra a hazy, a smoky, like, ghost of Rod Serling who appears briefly in the opening credits. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, that's my uh, that's my plug for... For that, and Charles Aidman actually, who was in a couple of classic Twilight Zone episodes, was the narrator and was really great as the narrator of those. Yeah, he does a fine job. Yeah, unfortunately, then when they put it in syndication, they redubbed all of his narrations and ruined it. But the original Robin Ward. Yes, well they they made they made it in Canada, and J. Michael Straczynski worked on that show, and 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 the episodes are not badly written, but they're cheap and made in Canada. Yep. So you know, and they look it, and they look it. All right, well we have we have been in the Twilight Zone. Submitted for your approval, four panelists enter a strange dimension known as a podcast. Uh, I don't have a whole thing written. I just threw that in there. So I'd like to thank my guests uh, for making it through this podcast and out of the Twilight Zone. David Lohr, thank you. Thank you. I just I just want to say I've spent more than 22 minutes with you all. Will the real Martian please stand up? Fair enough. Frank Wu, uh, all I've got here is this uh, bottle of, uh, of cherry brandy. But it's from 1904, oh. so it's a good it's year. It's a great year. It's a great year. It's not 1903. <laughs> Thank you for being here, uh, Steve Lutz. I don't. I don't even know what to say. Cloris Leachman. Hey, thanks <laughs> for being here. <laughs> He's a very bad man. You're a very bad man, Jason. <laughs> and you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. <laughs> I will. I, I promise. <laughs> and uh i swear i know who it is it's dan wiersh it's him thank you for being on the incomparable as a panelist and not just a uh, voice played on uh on a computer somewhere it's my pleasure and uh I, you know i don't know what's going to happen jason but i want to make it happen together <laughs> wow <laughs> hmm okay so you can check out uh random serling available where fine podcasts are sold is that right? Indeed, yes. Okay. Randomsterling.com. Thank you, sir. See, there you go. If you want if you want even more Twilight Zone and Night Gallery. You know, the state does provide for the extermination of undesirables. Mm. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that out there. Well, uh, until next week, I have been your host, Jason Snell. All hail the leader. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>